He struggled with depression his whole life. And the dark clouds just never seemed to lift. He was suicidal. He was even put in an insane asylum for a while. And yet he wrote some of the most deeply moving and deeply theological hymns. And in his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, William Cooper captures the beauty of God's providence when he says this, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In Esther chapter 5, we will see Esther take fresh courage and risk her life by approaching the king. And though she couldn't really see it, the clouds that she and Mordecai and the rest of the Jews were dreading, those clouds were big with mercy and would soon break with blessings on their head. And this, of course, was not due to any goodness on their part. Remember, the Jews living in Persia, especially Esther and Mordecai, were living a life of compromise. They did not have a robust, gospel-centered faith in the Lord. They had assimilated into Persian culture. But because God always keeps His promises, He would intervene He would be faithful even when his people were fickle. And isn't that the story of our lives? We are fickle people, and yet our God is so faithful. And what we'll see today in Esther 5, if we read in between the lines, is this. God is good when life isn't. That's what we'll see in this chapter, and it's what we see in the book of Esther. Life is not going the way Esther and Mordecai or the Jews would want. I mean, one minute Esther is is living the high life, the Persian high life, and the next minute she gets the news that all Jews, including her, are going to die. And so Esther has to risk her life. She has to barge in unannounced on the king. And that's against Persian law, and it results in immediate death. So will the king be merciful? Will Ahasuerus kill her? This is a risky move on Esther's part. She might die. And it's certainly not the life she would choose for herself. And Mordecai doesn't know it yet, but Haman plans to murder him soon on the gallows that he is building. And that's how life is sometimes, isn't it? Unexpected situations, drama, pain, Hurt, despair, sometimes one phone call changes everything. One minute life seems like it's going well, and then all of a sudden there's a dramatic reversal. Sometimes one phone call 
changes the course of your life. And so what Esther and Mordecai will need to learn, and we certainly need this reminder today, is that God is good when life isn't. Look at Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the good and merciful and gracious God that we serve. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. And so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. So Esther, at this point in the story, has not seen her husband for 30 days, likely because he's been shacking up with other concubines. And she hasn't seen him for 30 days, and she's about to drop a bomb on him that she has hidden from him for the last five years. She's about to tell him, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I'm one of the people that you just passed a law to be killed in 11 months. At this point in the story, they've been married for five years, and Esther is about to inform King Ahasuerus that she has been deceiving him this whole time. Plus, she hasn't seen him for a month, and as we know from chapter 1 and chapter 3, this guy can be a loose cannon. So who knows how this is going to go? Esther is approaching someone who is a fickle, drunk, womanizing king of the most powerful country at the time. He's the most powerful leader in the world at this time. And he's fickle, and he's a drunk, and he's a womanizer. And approaching this man unannounced can end your life just like that, according to Persian law. And Esther has to tell her husband that she hasn't seen for three, uh, 30 days that she's been deceiving him for five years. And the author of the book of Esther tips us off to this tension by mentioning six times in verse 1 the words king and royal. that They come from the same Hebrew root. And so you're supposed to feel that tension as you see king and royal pop up six times in one verse. The author wants to build the tension here for us. Esther is approaching the king, the Persian king, the most powerful man in the world, who happens to be her husband, but she hasn't seen him for a month, and she's going to tell him who she really is. And how will he react? Will he kick her out like he did Queen Vashti in chapter 1? And so Esther enters the inner court, and she just stands there and waits for her husband, Ahasuerus, to notice her and to call her in to see him. But notice that the text doesn't say that the king granted her favor. It actually says that she won favor in his sight. This girl, like we saw in chapter 2, she knows what she is doing. Just like she did back in chapter 2, Esther wins his favor I assume that she looked the best that she could in her royal robes, and she maybe even stood there and kind of did that little hair flip thing that you ladies do, you know, 
kind of, or you get your hair up in the little bun, you pull it down, you do that little head shake thing, and the guys are like, maybe she did that. Maybe she blinked her eyes a little bit. Maybe even blew him a kiss. Maybe lifted the bottom of her robe a little to show some leg. Whatever Esther did, it worked. She won his favor. And so five years later, and Esther has still got it. She knows how to work it. This girl is shrewd. She is doing everything that she can to win the king's favor. But make no mistake about it. Esther may be a beautiful woman with a great figure and able to win people's favor with her good looks. But this was a very, very dangerous situation. She is taking a huge risk to save the Jews. She is risking her life in this moment to save the lives of her people, the Jews. And sometimes we have to do that. Like I said last week, sometimes suffering is simply the painful payoff of risking love in a broken world. Sometimes suffering is simply the painful payoff of risking love in a broken world. Sometimes we have to take risks and do the right thing so that what is wrong and broken in this world will not continue. And that's why we have a Sanctity of Life Sunday. That's why we are against abortion. That's why we are against human trafficking. That's why we are against racism. It's why we are against any form of abuse. It's why we are against suicide. We want to be a church that God uses to see these things come to an end. We want to be a church that does whatever it can to see abortion end, to make it illegal, even if that means we have to suffer for it. We want to be a church that does whatever it can to make sure that human trafficking comes to an end. We want to be a church that does whatever it can to see racism end. We've got a long way to go in this country. We want to be a church that does whatever it can to see any type of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual ending. We want to be a church that helps those who are struggling with depression and maybe even considering suicide. We want to be people that come alongside them and listen and care and love and not just throw a Bible verse at them and tell them to pray. Listen, if you've never struggled with depression Throwing a Bible verse at someone and just telling them to pray and be happy in the Lord does not work. You're not the person to talk to them then. Maybe you just need to pray for them. It's a real problem. Unless you've ever suffered it, you just don't understand. And so we want to come alongside people who struggle. And I've had seasons of debilitating depression, so I know what it's like. We want to come alongside people and love them. Listen to them, which is exactly what John Newton did with William Cooper. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was very pastoral in his care for uh, William Cooper and tried to encourage him and and love on him. And that's the kind of church we want to be. And that means that we don't simply just pray. We we have to get involved. We have to do our part, which is why on Sanctity of Life Sunday, we put out these baby bottles for you to take and fill up with your spare change or dollar bills or checks And turn them in and why we encourage you to get involved with Karenet and help them in doing their part to see abortion come to an end. We have to do our part. And watching Esther in Esther chapter 5, watching her do this teaches us this truth. 
All of the dramatic reversals that occur in this book occur after Esther risks her life. It's only after her risky moves that we begin to see the reversals start happening. So the book of Esther shows us that the deliverance of the Jews comes about by both divine and human activity. Yes, providence is working behind the scenes, but we have to do our part. God is present in this book, even though he is most absent, but we still have to do our part. We have to take risks to see suffering end in this world. And there is a cost to seeing those things end. And sometimes the painful payoff is that we suffer for standing up for what is right. I know a woman in Texas who stood up and exposed the sexual abuse that was happening in a large church in Dallas. And because her family were good members there, plugged into this church forever, because she exposed the the sexual abuse that was happening in this large church, her family, who was and still is very much involved in this church, will have nothing to do with her because she stood up. She exposed a pedophile in this church and her parents will now have nothing to do with her or her husband or her kids. All because she blew the whistle on a pedophile in their church. And now she has a ministry where she's reaching out to make sure that sexual abuse in churches stops and that people are held accountable. She's paying the cost for standing up what is right. Esther teaches us that we have to do our part to see suffering end, and sometimes that means that we will suffer for it. Sometimes we suffer for standing up for what is right. There will be many times in your life where you have to trust God and do the right thing, and it will be hard. There will be many times when Jesus calls you to something and you follow him in obedience, not knowing what's going to happen next. Uncertainty will come knocking on your door when you follow Jesus as a disciple. And your plans will fall through. And unforeseen circumstances will occur. And they will captivate your heart. And you may suffer. And it will be hard to sleep. And it will be hard to eat. And hard to focus. And when these times come, we will be tempted to fear because our earthly security is being threatened. But here's the good news of the gospel. God is in control, and he is with you as you face these uncertainties. You sign up for one unpredictable turn after another when you sign up to follow Jesus as a disciple. You sign up for the unseen. You sign up for the unknown. Yes, just like the book of Esther, sometimes it seems like God is hidden. And we wonder where he is in our life and what he's doing. Sometimes it seems like God is nowhere to be found. And it's difficult, and it's a fight of faith. Believing what we cannot see is hard, but you are not alone, Christian. Jesus may seem hidden, but he is with you wherever he calls you to and whatever he asks you to do, even when it feels hopeless or you are uncertain about what will happen next. And this is the situation that Esther finds herself in. At great risk to her life, she goes in unannounced to see the king. And according to Persian law, she should die. And what happens? She wins his favor. 
Ahasuerus is merciful to her and he extends the royal scepter to Esther and he invites her in, which means she is spared and she will not die for approaching him unannounced. And then the king asks her what she wants and he even offers to give her up to half of his kingdom. Of course, this is not to be taken Literally, this expression of offering up up to half the kingdom was a common way of extending royal favor. Even King Herod does this in Mark chapter 6. And now that Esther has her husband's attention and she can ask for anything that she wants, like, you know that law that you passed about killing all the Jews, sweetie? Can you veto that thing? That's what you expect, right? That's what you want her to do. Why doesn't she do that? Was she so scared that she chickened out in that moment? Her nerves have got her so much, she just can't believe he's offered this, and she's confused? Is that what it is? Even though this was a very risky thing to do, I don't think Esther chickened out, and I'll explain why in a moment. So instead of asking the king to save the Jews, Esther instead invites the king to a party, and she tells them that she wants Haman to come to the party too. I told you there are ten parties in the book of Esther. These people like to party. So how does the king respond when his wife tells him that she has cooked a steak dinner for him and his favorite drinking buddy, Haman, can come too? The king says, let me see. Hmm, steak dinner, beer, my favorite drinking buddy, and my drop-dead gorgeous wife. Absolutely, I'll be there. And so Ahasuerus says, let's get the party started now. I'll text Haman right now and tell him to get over here, stat. And so Haman comes over, and it's party time. P-A-R-T-Y, why not, is what Ahasuerus says. Look at verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled And then Esther answered, My wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Another party. Esther, you have the opportunity. He just lobbed you a soft pitch, and this is your chance to knock it out of the park, and you want to say, will you come to another party? Now, she's being very shrewd. And so before we know it, all three of them are at a party. They're drinking wine. And verse 6 literally, literally reads at the banquet of wine, which tells us that there's a separate course at Persian banquets for the express purpose of drinking wine. This was one of their courses. You've got the appetizers, you've got the entrees, you've got dessert, and you have a course for just drinking wine, just drinking beer and getting hammered. I told you these Persians like to party. The P in Persia stood for party. Now, we may wonder why Esther didn't just ask the king to save the Jews when she had the chance here, but she's actually being very shrewd. When Esther postpones her request, she's not chickening out. She is actually following typical ancient Near Eastern protocol for presenting a request. She starts small, and she will work her way up to the big decision. And Esther knew this after being queen for five years. This is how it works. She knew that the Persians liked to make their decisions after they had a few drinks. Both historians, Herodotus and Strabo, report that the Persians typically decided important matters when they were drunk. That's why they're not ruling the world anymore. 
So Esther knows the Persian system, and she knows that if she gets her husband hammered a little bit, then he might be more open to granting her request. This girl knows exactly what she is doing. And so as they are doing a little day drinking, the king asks Esther what her request is, and she tells him that she wants to throw him another party tomorrow. She tells him that she will reveal her request to Marty at the next party that she's going to throw for the king and for Haman. And so how does King Ahasuerus respond to this request for the second party? He says, let me see. Hmm, beer, my favorite drinking buddy, steak dinner, and my drop-dead gorgeous wife? Absolutely I'll be there. And so at this point in the story, you expect the next scene to be the second party that Esther is going to throw, but it's not. So what could possibly happen in the intervening 24 hours that could add anything to this story? Why not just jump straight to party number two? Because inquiring minds want to know, is she going to ask the king to spare the Jews and what will he say? So why not just jump straight to party number two because we all want to know. What could possibly happen over the next 24 hours that could add anything significant to this story? What could possibly happen that could add any more tension to this story? Look at verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman leaves the party full of steak, full of beer, full of joy, But then he sees Mordecai at the king's gate and he's sick to his stomach. Mordecai does not bow down to Haman. He's not afraid of Haman. And seeing Mordecai is the fly in Haman's ointment. He was full of steak and full of beer and full of joy. And now he's full of rage when he sees Mordecai. But surprisingly, he doesn't do anything to Mordecai. And he goes home to throw yet another party and to tell everyone how good his life is. So Haman goes home and he gathers his friends and tells everybody, how, tells everybody how good his life is. He's got a good job, plenty of money in the bank. He's got a lot of promotions in his career. He just had dinner with the king and queen and only he was invited. And he's going back tomorrow for party number two. And he's got this large family. And having many sons in the Persian Empire was a big deal. The Persians thought you were manly if you had many sons. That was the mark of a man. How many boys do you have? That was the test of manhood. In fact, historian Herodotus says that each year the Persian kings would send a special gift to the man who had the most sons. 
So Haman is relishing in his new job, his new promotion, how much money he has in the bank, how he dines with the king and queen, how many sons that he has. In other words, this was a good year for Haman. 2016 might have been a rough year for everyone else. It might have been a tough year for y'all, but 2016 was a good year for Haman. It was a record year. All is well. Except that Haman can't enjoy any of this as long as his archenemy Mordecai is still alive. And so what do his wife and friends suggest? Build a gallows and hang this guy Mordecai on it. If this guy is keeping you from enjoying the good life, then kill him in the morning and then you can go enjoy Queen Esther's second party. Actually, the gallows that are mentioned here were not gallows as we would think of them. The the Hebrew word here, which is translated as gallows, is really the word for tree or a wooden object. So the practice of hanging people on the gallows like we think of, like in the Old West, was not this kind of hanging. In the ancient Near East, it generally referred to impaling someone on a stake. And since Haman's gallows were 75 feet tall, it would be hard to impale someone on that stake. So it's likely that part of the height that's mentioned here is the hill on which the stake would be erected. It would be built up high so everyone can see it. He wanted everyone to know what he's going to do to his arch enemy, Mordecai. So Haman probably built this stake on a high hill, and that accounts for the height of the stake. Part of the hill is counted in there. So Haman goes from being happy that he gets to eat steak again at Esther's second party to wanting to impale her dad Mordecai on a steak. Haman leaves the party full of joy and a belly full of steak and then he sees Mordecai and wants to put a steak through his belly. Haman obviously doesn't value human life. He needed to be in church on Sanctity of Life Sunday. Because for him, it's, hey, I can kill a guy, and then I can go party. And that's what pro-choice people are advocating. We can just kill these innocent, unborn babies, and then we can go on our merry way. But let's stop here for a moment. Do you feel the jerk of this ride that we've been on in this chapter? It really seemed like God was moving behind the scenes when Esther secured favor in the king's sight. Ahasuerus was merciful to her. It really seemed like things were going to work out. And then we get this note about Haman's hatred for Mordecai and how he wants to impale Mordecai on a stake. And isn't that how life is sometimes? It seems to be going well. God is answering your prayers and then all of a sudden... The bottom falls out. Sometimes what happens over 24 hours can change your life forever. And so what do you do when that happens? You have to remember that God is good when life isn't. Sometimes life feels so out of control and we wonder how God is going to intervene, how he's going to work it for our good. And when life isn't good, We may be tempted to think that God isn't good. But God's word tells us that God is good when life isn't. Psalm 119.68, our scripture reading this morning. 
you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. What David is saying is, you are good and you do good. At this moment, I need you to teach me that statute, that truth right there because I'm suffering. I need you to teach me that you're good and you do good. I need to learn that truth, that principle all over again. And so do we when life doesn't seem good. In his book, A Praying Life, Connecting with God in a Distracting World, Paul Miller says this, you can't have a good story without tension and conflict, without things going wrong. Unanswered prayers create some of the tensions in the story God is weaving in our lives. When we realize this, we want to know what God is doing. What pattern is God weaving? If God is composing a story with our lives, then our lives are no longer static. We aren't paralyzed by life. We can hope. Esther and Mordecai went to bed thinking things were looking good. Little did they know that Haman was building something to impel Mordecai on while they slept. And that's how life is, isn't it? There are drawbacks. There are reversals. There are changes that we don't anticipate. There are changes that we don't even want. We go to bed and life is great. And then we wake up the next day and we get the news that will change our lives forever. Sometimes it seems like life is going one way and then we get jerked in another direction. And oftentimes it's not a direction that we even want to go in. And so we wonder if God is there. We wonder, does he care? We wonder, is he involved? We wonder, is he really working? These are the questions that come up when life jerks us around. Listen, before we can begin to understand what God is doing in our lives, our circumstances can look all wrong. And that's why it's a fight of faith. And that's why we may be tempted to think that God's inactivity is unloving. When God is absent, when God is hidden and we can't see him, like in the book of Esther, it can seem like there is no hope. When God doesn't respond according to our timetable, when he doesn't show up the way we wish he would, we begin to entertain thoughts that he's not loving or that perhaps he doesn't care. But his inactivity according to our schedule is actually him loving us. His inactivity according to our schedule is actually him loving us. We think that he's being inactive. We think that he's hidden, but he's actually working. He's loving us in those moments. He's working behind the scenes for our good, not necessarily our liking. He doesn't always answer right away just to help refocus us on him, which is obviously what Esther and Mordecai needed desperately in their life because they have absolutely assimilated into Persian culture and have compromised and left their Jewish roots behind them. I've told you this before, but following Jesus really is a lot about trusting Jesus now and understanding him later. Trusting him in the here and now and understanding him later. The Christian life is not about trying to figure out what God is doing. It's about faith. It's not about trying to make sense of things. It's about trust. Charles Spurgeon said, You want always to see through providence, do you not? You never will, I assure you. Honor God by trusting him. 
Spurgeon is saying, I know you. I know how your heart works because I'm the same way. You want to see through providence. You want to see through sovereignty. You want to know why God is doing what he is doing. You want to see through that. I know you do, Spurgeon says. But he says, I assure you, you never will. So accept that reality, get over it, and honor God by trusting him. We want to know what God is doing, don't we? Some of you today, you want to know what God is doing right now. You're so perplexed. We want to see through providence. But guess what? We never will. We'll never be able to see through God's providence. We might get glimpses in this life, and we will when we stand before Jesus. We'll know exactly what he was doing. But right now, we just get glimpses. So we'll never really be able to see through God's providence. So we might as well do the one thing that will bring us the peace that we are looking for is to honor God by trusting him. It's an inescapable fact, Grace. While we seek to follow God faithfully in this world, many times we find ourselves in desperate situations and in moments that we would not choose. And that's Esther here. And that's Mordecai. And that's the Jewish people. And so many times we find ourselves in desperate situations and in moments that we would never choose. And God leads us in this way and he leads us to these places because he has purposes for us that are far beyond us. He has purposes for you and what you are going through right now that are so far beyond you. So what many times appear as misfortunes later end up being God's mercies to us. It's just hard to see in the moment because trusting Jesus really is hard. The great Reformed theologian Gerhardus Voss has been so helpful to me in this regard and I have read the following quote so many times over the last six months and I keep coming back to it time and time again. He said this, what the Lord expects from us at such seasons is not to abandon ourselves to unreasoning sorrow but, to tr- but trustingly to look sorrow in the face, to scan its features, to search for the help and hope which, as surely as God is our Father, must be there. In such trials, there can be no comfort for us so long as we stand outside weeping. If only we will take the courage to fix our gaze deliberately upon the stern countenance of grief and enter, unafraid, into the darkest recesses of our trouble, we shall find the terror gone because the Lord has been there before us and coming out again has left the place transfigured, making of it by the grace of his resurrection a house of life, the very gate of heaven. When the storms of life come your way, don't abandon yourself to unreasoning sorrow. Trusting in your heavenly Father, look sorrow in the face. And I love this line that he uses, scan its features. That means whatever's going on in your life, don't run, don't hide, address it. Go to it like Esther did. Scan its features. Find out everything you can about this. Trusting your heavenly father, not living in fear. Scanning its features. Searching for the help and the hope that are right there in that situation that you want to run from. And he says, you will find your heavenly father right there because he has gone before you. 
Take courage and fix your gaze on the stern countenance of grief and enter into the darkest recesses of your troubles. And because of Jesus, you will find the terror gone because the Lord was there before you were. I'm not one to do this naturally. I have my own coping mechanisms. I like to retreat. I like to run away from problems. Bury my head in the sand. La, 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 la. Maybe when I surface, it'll disappear. I like to ignore troubles and situations. I like to suppress them. That's my coping mechanism. I don't want to look sorrow in the face. I don't want to scan its features. I just want it to go away. But I'm learning by God's grace to look sorrow in the face, to walk into the room, to scan its features and to start looking for the help and the hope that I know is in that room because Jesus has gone in there before me. I'm learning that the clouds that I so much dread are filled with big mercies. As William Cooper said, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Things are about to change for Esther and Mordecai and the Jews. A great reversal is about to occur in the next chapter. The insomnia of a pagan king will be the catalyst for God to move, to save his people, and to keep his promises. God is present in the book of Esther, even though he is most absent. And it's true in your life to do today too. So keep it fresh in your mind that God is in control of everything. Remind yourself often, God does move in mysterious ways. So don't be afraid. Take fresh courage. Those dark clouds of suffering and pain and hardship and struggle and grief, the ones that we all dread, they are big with mercy and they will break in blessings on our head. Those clouds that we dread that are swollen, that are bloated, that that are about to burst at the seams, they will one day and when they do, they will shower down on us a torrential downpour of blessings both in this life and the life to come trust me on this one you can trust him you can trust jesus the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy because of jesus and you can't help but think of king jesus when you read about king ahasuerus in this chapter not that they are alike because they aren't With Ahasuerus, you have a drunk, womanizing king who is fickle. You don't know how he's going to react one moment to the next. But with Jesus, what you see is what you get. What you see is a good king, a faithful king, a merciful king who loves to spread his mercy to sinners. He enjoys it. Puritan Thomas Watson said this, What greater encouragement to believe than God's mercy? God counts it his glory to be scattering pardons. He is desirous that sinners should touch the golden scepter of his mercy and live. This willingness in God to show mercy appears two ways. Number one, by entreating sinners to come and lay hold on his mercy. And two, by his joyfulness when sinners lay hold on his mercy. What is God the better, the better, whether we receive his mercy or not? What is the fountain profited that others drink of it? 
Yet such is God's goodness that he rejoices at the salvation of sinners and is glad when his mercy is accepted. God loves to scatter pardons. He's not stingy. He's not a miser. He loves to see sinners touch the golden scepter of his mercy and live. He is glad when his mercy is accepted, when it is received. Will you receive it today where you are? Maybe you've had an abortion or you know someone close to you that has. If you're a Christian, that's not your identity. What has happened in your past is not your identity. Your past is Jesus' past of complete and total obedience to God's law. You are so united to Christ that his life is your life and there is mercy and there is forgiveness. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with suicide. Talk to someone. Talk to me. Talk to Jesus. Maybe you're struggling with racism. You need to repent, for starters, and then run to Jesus and say, change my heart. Maybe you've been involved in human trafficking or know someone that has. There's mercy for those people. Maybe you're involved in some abuse. If so, and you know about it, you need to go to the authorities and do the right thing. Or maybe you've been abused and there are scars and there's pain and there's hurt. Get help. Talk to others. Talk to Jesus. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. God is good when life isn't. Don't forget that. You just might need to remember that later this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are merciful. Merciful to sinners like us because in so many ways, Father, we have messed up our lives either through things done to us that we didn't ask for and there's pain and hurt or maybe we've inflicted that pain on others and there's mercy for everyone here. And so we are thankful for your son Jesus that we have a great high priest, a merciful high priest that we can come into your presence and touch your golden scepter and live. It's only because of him. Turn our hearts to him once again by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask in his name. Amen.